Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. Now, to tell you something, people, Halloween's coming up. Now, as you know, I recently moved back to New Jersey from being in L.A. for all those years, and all the time I lived in Burbank, I never got one trick-or-treater, and it always bothered me because I grew up in the suburbs where we had to walk from house to house. Where I lived in Burbank was a residential area with lots of apartment buildings and where I think kids would just clean up, and every year I'd buy candy, and no one ever showed up. And the thing that stunk was, I'm not a big candy eater, but then I end up eating it because I have no willpower if there's candy in the house. So this year in New Jersey, me and Joanna are in a condo complex where there are kids and I see kids out. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping we get trick-or-treaters because once again, if we don't, I'll be eating chocolate. Anyway, we have a great show today. This gentleman is is an actor, a musician, a voiceover guy. He wears a ton of different hats and my guest is Bill Moomy. How you doing, Bill? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I have the same problem. I live in Laurel Canyon and I used to love trick-or-treating as a kid, you know, and now we hardly, I'm, we're up in the hills and we hardly ever get any kids, but we always prepare for them with, you know, the candy to give away. And my wife, Eileen, and I always end up eating it. <laughs> it's true. Isn't it amazing? Like when we were growing up, trick-or-treating, it was like we looked forward to it. And all the years I lived in Burbank, I wouldn't even see kids like on the street. Like I'd see a few walking. I lived near downtown Burbank. I would see kids walking down to like restaurants, but I'm like... I mean, when we were kids, it was, you really took, you got excited and you went out with your friends and you, your parents would be like, just let you go and you'd never come back till you had a bag. And it's just crazy how it's changed. Oh, Halloween was like my favorite holiday as a kid. And I grew up in West LA and on a cul-de-sac and you could just kind of go around all these cul-de-sacs and walk for miles and miles with all your pals and dress up as Zorro or Superman or whatever and come back with a pillowcase full of candy. <laughs> So, so you know, you've, you've had a great acting career. You have a great music career. Now, you're currently in a band called The Action Skulls, and that's with Vicki Peterson, who people are familiar with from the Bangles, and John Castle from the Castles, and now with the Beach Boys. How did it all, how did you guys get together? And what was the whole process of you starting a band and knowing that it was something that was going to work and that you guys knew you had a good compatibility in your playing styles? Um. Well, I've, I, you know, I've made a lot of solo records, and I've been in several bands, but uh, it's always great when you're really in a group, you know, when it's when other people are finding their own parts and contributing and co-writing songs. And <clears throat> I'd known John for quite a long time, and we had been talking about making some music together because uh, he's a great drummer, and, and he does a lot of session work when he can. So we'd been talking for a year or so about, you know, collaborating on something, and then we, we were at the Beach Boys 50th uh, celebration when Brian and Al and Mike and Bruce and all the old guys were you know back in the band. And we really wanted to get together. But we were at a Christmas party. Um, Angela Cartwright from Lost in Space has an annual Christmas party. And uh, we all ended up there singing around uh, their upright piano. And Vicky, uh, you know, who's married to John. And I had known Vicky peripherally from gigs and I'd seen her at some bangle shows and we talked but we weren't really uh, that close and uh you know because we didn't know that many people they didn't know that many people at angela's party we kind of gravitated to the piano and we started singing some beatles songs and you know beach boys and dylan and just easy stuff that everybody knows but we we immediately fell into these three-part sing-along grooves uh, where <clears throat> the blend was pretty uh kind of powerful, you know, we looked at each other like, wow, that's an interesting sound, 
Um, obviously, John Cowsill is a great harmony singer just from singing with his siblings as a youngster, and then of course, <laughs> being a vocalist and drummer in the Beach Boys, you can't get you got to be a good singer for that. Bangles a lot of harmony, and I you know I've worked with America for years and years and years, and anyway, we just fell into these weird harmonies, and it was like that sounds really good. Maybe it was the eggnog, but uh, <laughs> we kind of committed at about one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning that night at the Christmas party to see where we might go with some original material. I've got a recording studio in my house, and we all have access to you know studios here in Hollywood. So um, we agreed, yeah, let's let's check this out. This is really cool. And about maybe a fortnight after that, I was at a gig with America. And Rick Rosas was there, the bass player, who we should all remember from Neil Young and Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young and uh, uh, Joe Walsh and just a lot of great people. Rick was a fantastic bass player. And, and we were having a nice chat and we exchanged numbers. And I said, hey, you know you know John Cowsill, right? And he said, yeah, I've played with John, great drummer. I said, well, we're going to go in and see what happens. He goes, do you have a bass player? <laughs> and, the, you know. Come on, that's like the best bass player in town asking if, if he might be able to take that seat. So I said, yeah, it's you. And he said, great, I'm in. And I half expected that to be a show-busy kind of let's do lunch thing. But that night at about 1.30 in the morning, he texted me. He said, hey, I'm really serious. I'm looking forward to this. Let's do it. So uh, synchronistically, it just came together very quickly. We went into the studio. And uh, John and Vicky and I had demoed a couple of songs, just, you know, live things with a few guitars, and sent it to Rick. So we all kind of familiar with a handful of the tunes when we first went in. And over the course of, uh, I guess, five sessions, um, we cut eight tracks, the four of us, with Rick, uh, just live together, you know, two guitars, bass, and drums, looking at each other, leakage be damned. And uh, everybody just, you know, fell in into the cool parts and uh, felt great. Um, and we were all happy. And then the Bengals had a summer tour and John went back out with Mike Love and the Beach Boys, which is almost never ending. They play like 200 gigs a year. I was making a movie uh, for whatever, four weeks or something that still hasn't come out. <laughs> <laughs> and Rick was drafted into a crazy horse for a European tour uh, because the bass player, I think it's, Billy Talbot um, had a stroke or something, and Neil drafted uh, Rick into the Crazy Horse European tour. So for a few months, everybody was just texting and emailing and, and chatting on the phones. We we weren't in the same place. Um, and then and then Rick went straight into the Meryl Streep movie, uh, Ricky and the Flash, and we had eight tracks in in you know the, the basics done, and then boom. Rick just passed away one night, you know, at the end of uh, the year in 2014. It was completely sudden, and and that that was a big hit for us in terms of like putting us into suspended animation, so to speak. We just kind of were like, "Wow, Rick, you're kidding! We had just done all this stuff," and everybody stepped away for uh, several months, and then we all started listening to what we had done, and it resonated really powerfully with us, not only as, you know, great tracks that had been lingering for seven or eight months, but, you know, also maybe the, the last studio things that Rick had been a part of as a contributing musician and, and, and a soul part. So 
we said we got to finish this. And uh, we wrote three more tunes and recorded three more tunes. I played bass on two of them, and, and John Castle's son, Will, played bass on one. So it's still just a, a family affair. There's five total musicians on the record counting uh, Will on bass on one song. And it took a while to get it done and, and layer it right, and, uh, and it's just been released, and uh, I'm really pleased with it. And uh, I think John and Vicky, I know John and Vicky are too, uh, we've done a couple of little uh, acoustic unplugged shows in the last uh, month. John's back out on the road now, but we're we're really happy with the record. It's getting great reviews, and and you know we're trying to spread the word. Now, when action you, skulls. Action. Now, when you when you first went in the studio, was the album always on your mind, or was it just in the beginning? Like you said, you guys had a great relationship. You got you had the great harmonies. Was there always an album in the back of your mind, or, or was it something? I, I, I think that was in the back of my mind because uh, after our initial like surprise, we can sing together and it sounds really good. I started writing uh, like crazy. I was really genuinely inspired to write for that sound. You know, um, normally, I mean, I never sit down and say, "Today I'm going to, you know, crank out a song unless somebody hires me to do that, like a theme song or something." But I hover over my head and then. I, I see where it takes me, and that usually comes in batches. You know, I'll get like 10 or 15 songs, and then it'll go away for a few months. Um, but I was getting like <laughs> a lot of songs, and I'd sit there with my iPhone video camera, and I, as soon as I was getting these tunes, I'd, I'd, re I'd record what was happening, and then maybe get a verse or two in a chorus. And then I would send it to John and Vicky because, uh, A, I wanted them to 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 feel free to finish or collaborate or poo-poo where it was going or say, hey, that's a really good one. Um, so that's, the, they called them the bathrobe demos. <laughs> John threatens to <laughs> share those someday because there's probably 20 things where I was just like, hey man, what about this? <laughs> and I'm sitting in a bathrobe playing half a tune. But we did have the uh, foundation of probably 15 or more songs that were three quarters written or all written or half written before we ever went into the studio. Uh, we cut three basic tracks on the first session and it went so smoothly and it was so much fun. And uh, I think better than we might have thought it would be because it went quick. I think we cut three basic tracks in like, you know, six or seven hours. Um, and it felt so good that we were all like, well, okay, when are you free to do this again? And then over the course of five sessions, we got eight tracks. And, and I think by the time the second session was done, and it, it, again, it went so, you know, well, that I, I, I think everybody started thinking, well, we've, you know, we have enough material. Let's, let's make this into an album. Well, now being, you know, you've been a musician for a long time and you love music. When you put the album together, because I've talked to this a lot about to my musical guests, how when you put the album together, you know, we grew up, you know, in a time where, albums were very important you know the whole the structure the songs the the artwork when you were putting your album together did you have an idea how you were going to put the tracks in order is that something that something that interests you to do oh absolutely sequencing is is incredibly important to me i mean i'm still i'm one of those guys you know who who grew up listening to albums i'm a guitar player who grew up picking the needle back and forth on a record player to, you know, figure out what's that riff that, you know, 
Stephen Stills is playing, <laughs> or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, the flow of a record, it's a, you know, 40 minutes, and, and to me, it's, it's like a film, it's like a book, it's, it tells a story. I mean, I'm not saying this is a concept record about, you know, Tommy or whatever, but it has to flow, and it has to have a natural rise and, and crescendo, and anyway, uh, yes, that's very important to me, and luckily, uh, Vicky and John and I were very, you know, in sync with with that we tried a few different sequencings but basically I, I think i sequenced it initially and uh what the 11 songs came out probably one or two were maybe moved a little bit but yeah i, I heard the beginning and end and the middle jumbled around a bit <laughs> now now you you wrote you, you're a music writer now when you sit down and write a song you said sometimes unless you're higher you don't do it right away you know and you wait for the muse but when you're writing a song, when you're sitting there in that process, and I always wonder, I always want to ask musicians this, do you know what the title's going to be as you're writing it, or does that just pump, hit you sometimes? Because sometimes the title's the chorus, but sometimes the title doesn't really have anything to do with the chorus. Like, how do you get your titles for your songs? Well, it, I'm lucky enough to have, you know, so many different tunes in the can over the decades that it... it, it changes from song to song once in a while i'll write down a page of like this could be a good song title you know i'll just get a title and i'll write it down on a piece of paper and one day i'll look at that piece of paper and see if that title inspires a verse and a chorus you know if it does great if it doesn't i'll let it be until maybe someday it does most of the time though i will get like a a a full verse of lyrics out of nowhere, just at the, you know, maybe eight lines or 12 lines. It's a certain, and you'll hear that rhythm of the, the iambic pentameter of the words, and uh, I'll go from there. There are other times when I'm just strumming or at the piano, and I'll get a progression. You know, no melody, just the chords. And uh, so it, it, it it's differently. It's just differently from project to project, the way the titles fall into place. There's a, on, on the Action Skulls, well, there's a song on, on the record called Faith Waltz, and it's obviously, uh, that's not part of the lyric. Uh, it's a song about faith, but, um, so that was just titled after the entire song was done, and that's kind of what it was about. The rest of the songs on uh, Angels Here are definitely in the lyric. And they just, you know, you just pick them and hope they're good ones. <laughs> now, now, why the title Angels here? Oh, well, that that's a good question. Thank you, Steve. Um, Vicky's, Vicky wrote the song Map of the World, which is a beautiful song. She'd been in a bit of a dry spell as a songwriter. And, um, and I was in a very prolific space, and I was really encouraging her to write, and it was maybe a little pushy because she was getting a little look, you know, I'll write when I write. Uh, she finished several of the songs of mine, but she came in with Map of the World and she and I cut it on two acoustic guitars, just the two of us. And um, it's a great song. It's maybe my favorite song on the record. The end of her chorus uh, says, there's a line that says, there be angels here, right? Like, there be dragons here or whatever, but there be angels here. And when Rick passed away and we decided to finish the record and we returned to that track and, and, and sweetened it and finished it up, 
um, we were putting the album together, looking for titles, and I liked the way that sounded, but John immediately said, well, wait, Angel's here. And I thought, oh, that, you know, it, like, as an Angel's, listen. And, uh, and I just felt that was very applicable to Rick. Um, and I voted for that quite enthusiastically, and John was into it. And, and I think Vicky was a little like, really, you want to use my line for the, <laughs> for the title? And we were like, yes. And I, I, I want to say something that's interesting, and, and unless you have the, the, the actual CD, I, I guess if you go to our website, you can see this too. Angela Cartwright took the photographs for the, uh, the CD, and um, obviously we had several you know, different locations that we were shooting in. If you look at the back of the album, <laughs> there's an orb right above us in, in the back cover photograph. And if you, if you go through all of the pictures that we took that day in different locations and in different angles, pointing south, pointing north, uh, in the majority of them, this orb is there. And uh, I truly take it to be Rick. I truly take it to be um, him wanting to be in the picture. And uh, and I think that's really cool. That is awesome. I, see, I love stories like that. You know, you always hear this, you know, there's all those stories like, you know, about different music things you hear or albums. I mean, I know when I was growing up, the big one was uh, Ohio Players Roller Coaster that there's a rumor that like in the studio next to him, someone got killed. And so the per one of the screams is actually that person screaming, but the producer said it sounded right. You know, just different stuff that you sit there and it really adds to music because you sit there and it would make sense for you because, you know, he was in studio with you guys. And it's, I mean, it would totally make sense that if that appeared in the picture. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, if it were just, if it were one or two uh, shots in one or two specific light, because they were out natural light pictures, uh, so if it was one or two of those with like, hey, I'd say, well, maybe that was just a little sunflare or something. But, <laughs> you know, it's it's pointing that way, it's pointing that way, it's over there, and it's over there. I, I just thought that was great. And and as, after we cut these basic eight tracks, um, I would sweeten, or uh, Rick had a great mantra. <laughs> and his mantra was, you can't erase it if you don't record it. Right. Which, I just, which I just love, which meant to say, hey, man, try whatever you want. You know, if we don't if we don't dig it, you know, we'll dump it. But you can't erase it if you don't record it. So I would take those the basic eight tracks that we had. And while Vicky was bangling or John was beach boying and, and Rick was crazy horsing, I'd put down some keyboard parts, maybe a little extra guitar thing here and there. But I would constantly send them an mp3 of what i was doing there was never a oh look you're it, I, it wasn't like brian wilson and the guys come back and here's the track i was like you know what do you think of this constantly and and rick was very much a voice in in saying hey i really like that part or you know that's a little cheesy <laughs> uh so even though there was a time period where action skulls were in different countries <laughs> and states at the same time, we were all actually involved in the continuing process of, of sweetening and adding to what we had done in the studio together un, un, until Rick passed away. And then things just kind of went in the freezer for a while. 
Now, how do you come up with the name Action Skulls? I love Action Skulls. I love names like that. There's a band in Philadelphia, and there used to be a band in the 80s called The A's, and they have an amazing frontman named Richard Bush. And he got out of business, and he came back recently, and his band's called The Peace Creeps. It's just a real catchy name. Like, Action Skulls. Action, funny. Yeah, Action Skulls is it's so catchy. Who came up with it? And then, and it's just it's it's so different. Well, here's here's how that happened. There there were a lot of late night texts going back and forth, and um, John and I are very kind of zippy. You know, we're like energized. <laughs> Vicky's laid back, and Rick was the epitome of laid back. But John and I are texting like back and forth all the time, and he's like, "Hey, man." I want to call the band Action Figures. And I said, I kind of wanted to call the band Peace Skulls. And, and it was just like, okay, man, Action Skulls. <laughs> and we laughed about it. And Vicky was like, we went into the, this was probably after the first session. And then we'd go into the studio and say, hey, man, we're going to Action Skulls today. And Vicky would look at us like, you boys are so <laughs> stupid. And, and John, uh, John was just jumping up and down with the whole action skulls thing and I kind of it just stuck man it just, it just stuck but then I said to them I said wait a minute you got you got Bangles Barnes and Barnes Beach Boys Buffalo Springfield we've all been in these B bands let's be in the A band let's really let's stay with this because we'll be in the, you know in my mind it's like you're at Tower Records and you're going through the bins well action skulls is going to be there before America or any of these other bands we've been in so it was kind of alphabetical, and then it, it just stuck. And then finally, Vicky, when we had been really sweetening the record, really getting the vocals done, going in and doing all these harmony pads, and you know, working hard at it for a couple of months at the end, because things were rock and roll and laid down quick and very natural. But then it took some work, you know, to, to really get the, all these vocals and stuff done, because it's it's pretty produced in terms of the harmonies on it. And then she was like, "Are we?" Are we really going to be action skulls? <laughs> and I bought everybody a ring, a skull ring. <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> and so she just accepted it, kind of rolling her eyes like, I can't believe I'm now in a band called Action Skull. It's catchy. Now, now, when did you start playing music? I mean, people, I mean, you, you're, you're an actor as a child and you still act, but when did music come into your life? Was it, was it, you know, I mean, as a kid, did you play music? You were probably on set, you were working a lot. When did music, when did you start playing music and what were some of your influences that took you into this field, which, you know, you think about it, you know, we don't think in the future as a, you know, as a kid, you're in Lost in Space. I'm sure you, you never would sit there and think, wow, one day I'm going to be playing music with someone who plays in the Beach Boys and with Neil Young and just the bangles, just these amazing things. And even when you play with America. But when did you, when did you start playing music? What brought your interest into picking up an instrument? I started playing guitar when I was 10. And I, I started taking lessons, and I took lessons for like three years. You know, they'd come to the house once a week. Uh, there are three or four episodes of Lost in Space where Will Robinson is sitting on a foam rubber rock with his guitar singing Green Sleeves or Sloop John B or strumming some weird stuff in the background. Um, you know, I went to the studios back and forth in my mom's car when I was five years old on and we always listened to pop radio and I was very always passionate about the LA bands you know the Jan and Dean and Ricky Nelson uh, 
early Beach Boys and stuff. That stuff really resonated with me. And I did a couple, three. I did three episodes of uh, Ozzy and Harriet, and I got to sit there and watch Rick and you know Jimmy Burton on that, that Telecaster, you know, lip syncing and jamming in between stuff. And that was that was kind of a wake up call. Uh, everybody watched, you know, the, the Beatles on its Sullivan February ninth, nineteen sixty four. That was a uh, that was right when I started to. Uh, to take guitar lessons right after the Beatles. But it was folk music that somehow or another twisted me around from kind of like Jan and Dean, and, and although I still love that L.A. surf stuff, but um, that, I, I don't know, but my friend turned me on to the Kingston Trio, and that kind of hit me like a religion. I became a real big folk snob for, you know, three or four years, really into that, you know, I... I, I it, it was all about, you know, songs that really told stories and the driving kind of acoustic rhythms behind those those records and stuff. And I kind of went off of the old Ramalama Ding Dong and Papa Umau Mouse stuff. I let that go away for quite a while. Uh, and interesting, really, the Kingston Trio, one of the things about that band, we applied to the Action Skulls, which is um, not to say that, you know, trying to be that kind of a folk band. But uh, on the great majority of Kingston Trio uh, tracks, those guys exchange lead vocals on the verses. You know, one of them starts, and then the other one takes a verse, and then there's three-part three part harmony on the chorus, and then the other one takes a verse. And uh, we did that a lot on the, on the uh, Action Skulls record, and one reason was the songs lyrically lent themselves to more than one narrator. Uh, but it was, there's very few bands that did that. You know, Traveling Wilburys did that quite a bit, and uh, uh, the Kingston Trail. So uh, there's a lot of, of songs on the Action Skulls record where the lead verses are equally divvied up. You know, John will start it, and then Vicky will take a verse, etc. myself, and then we all come together on the choruses. And that was a, a throwback to the Kingston Trio's inspiration. Now, when you know, because you were on a hit show when you were younger, did that enable you to meet certain musicians that you wanted to meet? Did that also maybe open some doors for you? Because people, everyone knows Lost in Space. You know, everyone knows the the Twilight Zone. You know, I mean, did that help you somewhat? Because people said they were familiar with you, and they now you're completely different because you're older. You know, you were a child in them. But did that? Did you get? Did you meet anybody that helped you out, or did you meet get to meet anybody that you really absolutely up to? absolutely? You know, being a, a I, dare I use the word, you know, celebrity or just, you know, a well-known actor, whatever you want to call it. Sure, it opens a lot of doors. I mean, we had, <laughs> June Lockhart had the Allman Brothers when they were in the Hourglass down on the set visiting, playing. We all went to the Whiskey A Go-Go in 67, hung out in the dressing room with, you know, the Allman Brothers and, and uh, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. And June took me and Angela Cartwright to go see Donovan and Simon and Garfunkel and stuff. And, and yes, being, uh, in fact, I, I went to a Kingston Trio concert in 67 and was recognized in the audience from the guys on stage. And they, they announced me and we went backstage. And then I started kind of being mentored by John Stewart from that band for years. And yeah, uh, the, the celebrities, this last year I played with Ringo. You know, I, I got up and played and sang with a little help from my friends and give peace a chance with Ringo at the Greek Theater. That was <laughs> that probably wouldn't have happened if he hadn't have been, if he hadn't seen Lost in Space in a hotel on Beatle tours. <laughs> but it's also a blessing and a curse because the world tends to put you in a box 
as what they initially know you for. So I've been a musician since I was 10 years old, and I've been a professional musician since I was, you know, 15 or 16 years old, like legitimately working and playing gigs and recording and writing, etc. But uh, I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, that's a TV guy, um, and and it gets it opens doors in terms of yeah, I can do phoners all day and talk about Lost in Space and a new record, but uh, I think it also kind of you know, puts people in a place of, oh, he's an actor, I, you know, I don't think I'm going to get that record, I think I'll get this one instead. So I don't think it's, it, 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 in some ways it's helped, and in some ways it, it's hurt. But, you know, you, you do what you do. Now, how did, uh, you, how did it come about for you to become part of America? And were you a fan? I mean, and what, I mean, how does it happen? As much as you said, you know, it's because, like, when Ringo called you up, you know, it's it's yeah. He may have watched Lost in Space, but he also knows you have the chops. I mean, you've re- well, you've yeah, recorded... I was invited into the Ringo yeah. thing by Steve Lukather, who's yeah. you know great guitar player and a longtime friend of mine. And, right. and so, they had mentioned that the, the, the Ringo's All Star Band were on a plane, and Ringo was talking about and Lukather was talking about me to Ringo, and the guys went, "Oh, he, he let's get him up there." And Ringo went, "Yeah, okay." Yes, yeah, so <laughs> you, you have um, the chops. As far you've as America so goes, uh, you know, I've been working with those guys for. You know, 40, yeah, over 40 years. On their very, very, very first trip to the States, they, you know, they're all American, but they grew up in England. Uh, they played a week at the Whiskey A Go Go in 1972, October or November of 72. And a friend of mine had uh, gone to school with them in England. So I went the first night, we're all about the same age, and uh, I ended up staying and going every night to the whiskey uh, with America because I was in an acoustic trio called Redwood at the time and we were recording at Record Plant and Jerry, Dewey, and Dan they were, you know, the three cats from America they came down to Record Plant to check it out because it was a happening studio and they came to one of our sessions and they ended up recording their second and third album at Record Plant with our the guy who was engineering our record, Mike Stone and they decided to leave England and they moved into the same apartment building my friend was living in and we just started writing and playing from the very beginning and yes you know I think the whole Lost in Space Twilight Zone Bless the Beast and Children kind of thing uh, resonated with those guys too because they were you know my age and peers of that kind of entertainment so yeah it opened doors but then we just started playing and writing and jamming right off the bat so you know they're on Barnes and Barnes records I'm on America records I've probably co-written 20 songs with those guys and you know we've all cross collaborated on on projects solo and bands and I've gigged with them for many years but I definitely don't go out on the road with America anymore it's, I don't I don't want to live my life in a bus now, now, how did Barnes and Barnes come about? Because you know that everyone knows that song, Fish Heads. You know, anyone who I'm, I'm fifty two, I'm fifty three, and everyone you know who's over, everyone, we all listen to Doctor Demento because it was different then. Yeah. You know, there was only certain. You only had a few stations in Philadelphia. We had YSP, we had WMMR, and I think we had Wi Fi ninety two. They were like the ones that had classic rock or shows like that. How did Barnes and Barnes come about? And it's something like that. Did you ever think like a song? You guys probably just had fun, and the the. The best line in that, and I tell people this, is Roly Holy Holy Poly Fish has never seen drinking cappuccino in Italian restaurants. That's like one of the best 
lyrics ever to me. I, I don't know why it just sticks to me. But when you, Thank guys, you. But it's just I, it's one of those things. You know, I, if I put it on, I go. I have to wait to hear that part. When you thank you, you're welcome. It's just it's so different. And back then, they no one even drank cappuccino back then. That's the, the thing. <laughs> but, you know, well, when, um, you know, when Lost in Space ended, I went back to public school, and I it was a very hard transition, right? Because somebody, a lot of guys wanted to kick my ass and a lot of girls wanted to flirt with me and I didn't know who was my friend and who was not my friend and it was, I was 14 and it was, a you know, 14, it was just an awkward thing until I formed a band and then we started playing the, you know, school dances and the, the, all that stuff and the minute I formed a band and could really play and like people went, oh, you know, then everything got good. Everything got good. So uh, Robert Hamer, uh, my partner in Barnes & Barnes, was in my very first teenage band, a band called Energy. And he played the Farfisa organ like Ray Manzarek from The Doors. So the two of us were just, you know, in this cover band. And then a couple of years went by. We're still best friends. We're going to concerts and gigs together. And we both always had uh, tape recorders. You know, at, at the beginning it was just a stereo reel to reel and became those TX four tracks and eventually eight tracks, eventually sixteen tracks, blah blah blah. But um we were pursuing our own kind of songwriting serious stuff. But we would get together and we would just turn on one of the reel to reels and we would jam. And because we were big fans of like the E C horror comic books and Mad Magazine and, and Zap comics and stuff, you know, um we would jam but then the lyrics would go into some pretty strange places one night we had a dinner at a chinese restaurant called uh what was that restaurant oh i can't think of it right this second it wasn't off songs anyway we went to dinner at a chinese restaurant they, they served a fish with the fish head kind of curled up and staring at you well robert wrote uh, the chorus i gotta give him full credit for the fish heads fish heads roly-poly fish heads eat them up yeah so he wrote that chorus and then the next time we were jamming, we started to record it, and I wrote the verses. I wrote all the verses. And actually, my favorite line in it is, uh, I took a fish head out to see a movie, didn't have to pay to get it in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that one. That's a great particularly. one. <laughs> but anyway, so we wrote this song, and then we demoed it and laid it down. And then it, it, a lot of our friends heard it, you know, just in the house. And they went, that's funny, man. So we went back and redid it again, and this time I will take credit for saying, I mean, we ought to do these choruses like the Chipmunks. I always liked the Chipmunks when I was a kid. Uh, so we did the choruses at the sped-up Chipmunk sound, and then Robert said, I want to send this in to uh, Dr. Demento, because he was a weekly listener to the Dr. Demento show. Of course, I knew of the Dr. Demento show, but I wasn't really a big Dementite. Uh, but Robert sent it in, and... Uh, you can't escape your destiny. Fishheads is still the most requested and most popular song in Dr. Demento's little history, and it it started to break. And then um, Rhino Records uh, and Bill Paxton, our friend Bill, said, "Hey, man, I want to make a movie of Fishheads." So we produced the Fishheads movie, and then Billy went to Saturday Night Live, and just like a it's like a Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney movie. He just he took this tape and he went to NBC and he sat in the office and. He said, hey, man, i got to show this to you guys. And he had never been in a film yet. Bill was completely unknown, just this Texas kid with incredible energy. He said, no, man, you 
gotta see this. You gotta see this man to call fish heads. Come on, check it out, man. <laughs> he sat there and waited for a day. Finally, they said, okay, all right, we'll look at it. And he was on that, that night or that weekend. And then they ran it two weeks in a row and it just started to break. And then uh, Bill Siddons, who was the Doors old manager, we contacted him because Robert was a big Doors freak and said, hey man, you want to manage us? <laughs> and he was like, sure. And he got us the record deal with Rhino and uh, we started making more videos and a bunch of records. And yeah, that's this little culty thing, Barnes and Barnes. It's, it's pretty cool because we always had a lot of a lot of fun and, and a lot of special guest stars on Barnes and Barnes things that you wouldn't ex expect. Steve Perry, America's on a million Barnes and Barnes songs, and yeah, how, a lot of cool people. How did you come up as your as Barnes and Barnes? Well, first of all, I want to know how you came up with the name, and then how did you guys? Because you're a serious songwriter, and you know, how did you put yourself in a in a place where you you know you're going to write these different songs? So you guys created a lot of content. I mean, how did that all come about? Well, uh, we definitely wanted to have secret identities because we expected that our serious songwriting and the projects that we were demoing and or performing in bands live, you know, that was our kind of main focus. And Barnes and Barnes was like this place for excess kooky energy that we didn't really, you know, want to expose as, as you know, it's Bill Mooney from Lost in Space. Yeah, boogie woogie amputee. <laughs> We wanted these secret identities, so we came up with Art and Artie, and actually the Barnes, uh, it doesn't resonate as well today as it did then. It came from a Bill Cosby routine. I used to love Bill Cosby, man. What a disappointment, you know. I mean, I loved Cosby as a kid. Oh, I, you know, I, and, I sit there, and, you know, I still, I when we moved back, I got I got rid of a lot of my cassettes, but some were in stores. Yeah, but I had, yeah, you know, I had the best um, of Cosby. because... Uh, so much pleasure from that stuff that I always felt was, and look, man, he doesn't have to get all filthy about it. Anyway, uh, he had an album called Revenge, and in that that track, Revenge, there was a character named Junior Barnes, and <clears throat> there's a bit in the Cosby thing where he's like going, Junior Barnes, Junior Barnes, <laughs> and that's where the Barnes and Barnes came from. Um, don't ask me really why, but that's where it came from, and we became Barnes and Barnes. And for years, we worked very hard to keep Art and Artie as our secret identities. And then after three albums at Rhino, we went to Columbia, and Columbia insisted that, oh no, come on, let's exploit the whole Billy Moomy bit of this and put us on, you know, but to. Today Show and Entertainment Tonight and whatever they could book us on to, hey, look, it's Will Robinson singing these new wave weird songs. And honestly, honestly, it, it really didn't make much of a difference at all in terms of how many units we sold. And after one album on Columbia, we were back on Rhino <laughs> and wished we hadn't necessarily, you know, divulged our secret identities. But uh, that, that's, that's the story there. When you were younger, you know, after Lost in Space and, you know, in that time when you're acting and you're playing music, how did you, how did you, 
make time for both. I mean, you know, it's like if you sit there, you know, people, you know, you look at your resume, you have so much stuff you've done, but like how, how do you have the time when you're going for auditions and then you're playing music and I know you start making solo albums, how would you juggle things? How would you keep everything in order? Because it's not like now where you can just sit there and send someone an email and say, hey, I'll be right over. There you had to physically go somewhere. It's not like you could record an album in your house then. How did you balance everything at a young age? Never seemed hard to me. You know, I, 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 when you say it, and it is true, I, I was doing a lot for a long time. But even as a kid, even on Lost in Space and stuff, you know, I never felt like I didn't have a normal childhood. I'd go home and go toss the frisbee with my friends around or go to the park or go to the beach. And, um, it just, it, it really wasn't hard. Like, Redwood was a, a band that I was in for six years from... Uh, 16 through 21 and I was doing a lot of acting work at the same time and we played 100 gigs a year uh, you know I remember being on a television series called Sunshine that only lasted one se one season for NBC but I would wrap out of uh, you know at 7 o'clock or something leave the lot and go straight to a gig play till 12 or 1 and go home and be back on the set at 7 the next morning but you can do that when you're 21 <laughs> you know and it, it it never really was hard. I was always gigging or I was always recording. And I was always, uh, you know, I didn't work as much as I did when I was 11, but um, acting-wise. But I was very picky about that stuff after a while in terms of what I wanted to add to the catalog as an actor. But um, I don't know. It didn't seem to be a problem. I used to do a whole lot of stuff. How did, now, how did, how did you get into acting? What was that road in, I mean, as a, did you, as a kid, were you a funny kid? Or, I mean, how did your acting career start? And then, you know, you started booking stuff at an early age. And, you know, I'm just saying yeah. Twilight Zone and Hitchcock and just classic, yeah. classic TV, iconic shows. How did you get yeah. into acting? I broke my leg when I was four years old playing Zorro, jumping off of a bed and landing on a Winchester toy metal rifle that snapped my leg in half and so for the period that I was in a cast from my ankle to my thigh which was I don't know you know like what is it eight ten weeks something like that uh, I couldn't go run around with my friends outside on my little cul-de-sac and be a four-year-old you know little spanky and our gang guy uh, so I watched as much TV as I could all that time and what I watched every day was Superman with George Reeves and the Mickey Mouse Club with Zorro, and Zorro, whatever. I watched Zorro and Superman passionately. There were other stuff I watched, too, you know, whatever, the Spin and Marty and stuff. But it was it was Zorro and Superman, those caped adventurers in the television set that just said to my four-year-old Billy Mooney brain, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to do. I want to be like those guys. <laughs> And we lived in, you know, we lived 100 yards from Beverly Hills. Um, I was an only child with red hair and freckles. My my mother, before she married my dad, worked as a writer's secretary at 20th Century Fox for 11 years. My grandfather, who passed away before I was born, had been a successful agent in the 1930s. Uh, Boris Karloff was probably his most well-known client, you know, got him the Frankenstein audition contract and stuff, meaning that 
and and my parents had me kind of late in life. My dad was 49 when I was born. My mom was 41. Uh, they weren't impressed with the business of the town. They knew the business of the town. My dad was a pretty wealthy guy in those days. And uh, I had that committed energy. I really wanted to do it. So my dad said to my mom, you know, as long as you go with him and check it out, if you go check it out. So she booked me on Romper Room, which is a, if you remember Romper Room, it was a syndicated nursery school television show where, you know, regular civilian kids could go on TV and be like in a school environment for a week. Well, it was smart of her to do that because she wanted to see how I would react in the environment of lights and studios and cameras around me and and stuff like that. And I had a ball. I had a great time on a opera room with Miss Mary. And uh, they booked me for two weeks instead of one. So we came out of romper room, I guess, approaching the age of five and said, well, he, this is what he wants. It's, it's, it's cool. It's whatever. And then got me an agent and boom, I, I started working. And uh, from five till the end of 10, um, I was, you know, this free agent. One week I'd be, you know, in a have gun will travel or something. The next month I'd do a Disney movie. Then I'd go do a Twilight Zone. Then I'd go do a Ozzy and Harriet. Then I'd do a Dr. Kildare or a Ben Casey or a, you know, a movie with Judy Garland or whatever the case may be. Work with Lucy and Jack Benny and Bob Hope and all these guys. It's just crazy. Jimmy Stewart, Bridget Bardot. I mean, it. I could sit here and laundry list like these iconic names, Walt Disney and Hitchcock and Rod Serling and all these people that I worked with as a kid. And it was all good. I didn't have any, I don't want to go, I don't want to be here stories. You know, I didn't have any, all my parents took all my money story. I don't have any of that stuff. I had a really good time. I liked acting. Um, I was good at it. You know, some kids can throw a fastball. You know what I mean? Some kids can make cupcakes really well. Somebody can draw a picture of a horse at the age of five years old, and you go, damn, that's a good horse. <laughs> you know? Well, I could memorize that dialogue and, you know, hit my mark and deliver it believably. It's just, you know, everybody has something. And I, I, I found my thing there as a kid. And it was good, honestly. I don't have any horror stories. Well, Lost in Space, you know, was a sci-fi thing, and then later you ended up on Babylon 5, which is a sci-fi thing. Were you a Star Trek person at all growing up? Were you a fan of sci-fi? Because you were involved in sci-fi, but that's like, as you say, you're an actor. You might not enjoy sci-fi. I know you like comic books and that stuff, so I'm guessing you probably do like sci-fi. But were you a fan of sci-fi before Lost in Space, or did that get you into the whole sci-fi genre? And then how did, how did Babylon 5 come about? Um, I was a huge comic book fan and collector, mostly superhero and sci-fi, you know, Adam Strange, whatever you want to call that stuff. Um, I was a huge comic book fan since the age of five. So anything that fell into that kind of arena of acting was something that I was happier to do than maybe a Dr. Kildare, right? Well, you get to be a sick kid for a week. Hey, man, you get to be an evil mutant who can read people's minds. Hey, you get to be, you get to go to the, you know, get to be with Samantha or I Dream a Genie or On the Monsters. Yeah, I'll take that. You know, I, I, I did gravitate and, and prefer, not that I didn't like the other stuff, but yes, I, I liked the more sci-fi fantasy stuff. Um, I always wanted to be, you know, Superman or Zorro. So Will Robinson 
was a total superhero, right? I mean, the guy had his superhero outfits. He had a robot. He had a ray gun. He used the ray gun. I got to shoot it. You know, I got to fly the ship and be, and be the hero for 84 hours of television. Um, I loved that. Uh, and I always accepted the opportunities to be in comic book stuff, Superboy, The Flash, Batman, the animated series. I mean, there's a long list of those, too. But I always like to do those things. Uh, Babylon 5 came along in 1993. I can't believe it's almost 25 years. Because it <laughs> seems fresh. Um, my wife, Eileen, and I were... We're going down to celebrate our anniversary at the time. We were we had booked the train down to San Diego, and we were just getting ready to leave. And my agent at the time called and said, hey, I got an audition for you for some sci-fi thing. And I was like, forget it. I'm you know, going to San Diego. And Eileen said, oh, no, we can change it. Go, go check it out. You never know. So I did, and I ended up, you know, in that alien makeup for five years. <laughs> so you never know, right? You never know what audition or what song or what, you know, believe me, if I, if I would have thought, I would never have thought Fish Heads is the song that's going to make me, like, money. <laughs> and I would probably not have thought I'm going to be an eggplant <laughs> on Babylon 5 for five years. Um, but, I, but, you know, that's that's the way it went. What's the makeup process for that? Was it very long and you have to get in before everybody because you have to get makeup? It was it was really tough. And I don't mean tough like, you know, look, it, uh, it's not like you're in Afghanistan with a 90-pound backpack and a, you know, automatic rifle in your hands tough, right? I'm not, I'm not taking it out of perspective of, of reality what's really tough. But I'll tell you something. <laughs> I never really acclimated to the process of becoming and unbecoming uh, linear on Babylon 5. I'd, I'd have to be in that makeup trailer at like 4.30 in the morning. And it took, well, the first season, it took four hours. But they got it down to two hours. So, I mean, for four of the five seasons, it was like a two-hour process to get the makeup in the wardrobe. To get that on was like two hours. First few episodes were just unbelievably horrible nightmare in terms of what have I gotten in my um, but then they got it down to two hours but honestly I'll tell you man taking that makeup off was much worse than putting that makeup on really? because you, you'd go in there at 4.30 in the morning you'd have a little mixed cassette music that I would make you know and we'd, I'd be in there with Peter Jurisic and Mira Ferlin and Andreas Katsoulis and we'd be in the alien makeup trailer and we'd listen to some mellow music and, and while well, it was still dark outside and you'd kind of close your eyes and they'd glue this stuff this rubber to your face and paint it and do what they do nice guys but you know cover your ears with latex and all that stuff but at the end of the day after whatever 9, 10, 12 hours of wearing that stuff then it's time to go so you sit there with two washcloths over your eyes while they're pouring these weird solvents on your face and peeling this rubber off your forehead and your neck and your cheeks. And, 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 and you know, honestly, that stuff always made me go, well, let me read that bottle, man. Are you sure this is okay to be pouring this in my face every day? Well, it's the best, it's the easiest we got, you know, it's the best stuff, yeah, it should be okay. 
And, you know, if that stuff got in your eyes, it'd be like, ah. So taking that character off was really tough. And the last couple of years of Babylon 5, um, my son was, was four or five. My daughter was born during the second season. So I had two little kids at home. And I had co-created a, a series on Nickelodeon called Space Cases that was shooting in Montreal. And I was co-writing every script. So I'd have to get up at like quarter to four in the morning and go work on Babylon 5 till like, you know, whatever, seven o'clock at night, nothing heinous. But then I'd come home and I'd watch dailies and I'd try to play with my little kids. And I was doing voiceovers too. <laughs> I was doing the farmer's insurance voiceovers starting then. Farmers, get you back where you belong. Thank you. Thank you, LA. <laughs> anyway, uh, Babylon 5, well-written show, well-acted show. Um, I'm glad I stuck it out, but uh, I, I would not do it again. Now, what is it like for you now with, you know, with Lost in Space, you know, you can watch it again. You know, the DVDs of Lump. Science fiction's never been bigger. And being on part of, a, you know, Babylon 5 and Lost in Space, do you go to a lot of uh, conventions? And if you do, people must go crazy because they have a guy who's in two amazing shows in one place. Well, I, uh, between, I also, uh, you know, did Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and those guys are very passionate, loyal Star Trek fans. You know, and all the three Twilight Zones that, that, that I did, plus the sequel to It's a Good Life. I have, yeah, major sci-fi cred. But when my kids were little, I would go to a handful of conventions a year. Now I go to maybe two a year. And it's nice, and it's it's pleasant, and people are complimentary, and you get your ego stroked. But you know, in the long run, you're you're flying across the country or across the world, which I don't like to do anymore. I just don't. I don't I'm not an airplane fan. I'd rather be on a spaceship than an airplane. And you know, you're leaving on a Thursday, and you're coming back on a Monday. And you're shaking thousands and thousands of hands every weekend at these things. And nine times out of ten, you come home and you've got a sore throat or you've got the flu or you've caught something from somebody who sneezed and shook your hand. And again, it's a very, it's, it's ego tickling and it's nice and people appreciate your work and, and it's, it's fine. But I, I started doing those conventions in the late 70s when they were first, you know, happening. So there's nothing new about them for me. And I'll do one or two a year. Now, um, the album came out September 28th, the Action Skulls. Action yep. Skulls, yeah. Now, because you guys have such a busy schedule, so all everything's going, are you going to be able to get to play any live gigs, or is that something that would interest you? I mean, as you said, you don't want to go on the road or anything, but is that something where you would want to play, like at the Canyon Club, or, or you know, uh, the place, uh, that, the Coach House in San Juan Capistrano, or some of those places that are cool joints that, you know, get cool bands? Is it something that you guys yeah. have talked about, about possibly trying to do live gigs? Absolutely. We talk about it all the time. We went and did some just two guitars unplugged uh, promo shows in studio a couple weeks ago. Just two guitars, you know, to reduce the album to like we can, we can come into the radio station and, and do this. And we did four songs with just two guitars. We talk about it all the time. I would love to go do some good gigs. Vicky would love to go do some good gigs. John threatens to say, I'm going to quit my day job. I'm going to quit my day job. And then, you know, honestly, you have to say to the guy, hey, John, you know, you're a drummer. 
you're 60, you're playing 200 gigs a year, playing Brian Wilson classic songs at like the Royal Albert Hall. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think you should quit your gig so that we can, you know, go play McCabe's in the Canyon Club. Right. You know, the other the other point to that is Rick is no longer alive, so obviously it's not hard. But we have to get another another bass player. I played all the keyboards on the record, so we have to get a keyboard player, which is this is not hard. We we know players, but it's a matter of saying, okay, we got a bass player now, we got a keyboard player now. Here's John, Vicky, and Bill. We're going to go into a rehearsal hall for ten days and really work up the album live. Maybe throw in another five tunes or something, and we'll have you know a seventy-minute show to go out and, and, and play. Well, that all sounds great, but if if you're on the road with Mike Love two hundred and fifty days a year, and you look at your calendar and you go, well, I have four days in January, and now then I'm gone for six weeks, and I have I got. Six days here in February, you see what I mean? To try and say, well, when are we going to work it up? And then who, how are we going to book it, you know, six months in advance? What if Mike Love books another gig that day? Right. So we do want to do it, but I don't want to be the guy who's pushing John to quit his day job when the reality is, you know, if you want to be a, a performing musician, he's got a pretty good gig. Right. <laughs> he's in the Beach Boys. And, and they work so much that, you know, the money is real. And who doesn't want to play, you know, Good Vibrations or, or Don't Worry Baby or Fun, Fun, Fun or those great Brian Wilson songs? I mean, they're, they're, they're wonderful songs. I mean, you know, if you're a player and you're up there playing Caroline No or God Only Knows, it's like, wow, man, it doesn't get a whole lot better than that. Right. Well, you know, Bill, I really want to thank you for taking the time. This is a great... Uh... Great. I love talking to you. And it's just because you've done so many different things. And uh, now your website is Bill Moomy, that people, that's B-I-L-L-M-U-M-Y.com. Now you have a link to the Action Skulls on there, I believe, right? Yes, indeed. Lots of bios and pictures and stories and stuff and, you know, links to click and it's all good. And, you know, between Facebook and whatever these other social media things be, we try to stay connected and draw some attention and answer some questions and all that stuff. And I do really hope that we do get the opportunity to, to, to figure it out so that it works for everybody and, and we can get a plug out, plug in and get out there and, and, and play live for people. And we're actually talking about, you know, hey, what tunes have you got? Let's, we should think ahead. Maybe we're going to do this again, you know, make another record in a year or so. So I don't think you've heard the, I, I don't think Action Skulls Angels here is a one and only kind of, first thing and that's it i think we're gonna be doing more stuff together well that's awesome so people go check out billmoomy.com i'll go to my website coopertalk.net you can find over 650 episodes up there you can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net i'll tell me what guests you want to hear any of that stuff follow me on twitter at coopertalk also my other website stopthesalt.com when i had that heart problem a few years ago i wrote a cookbook it's 120 Easy recipes, low sodium, no pictures to intimidate you, no long list of ingredients. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. I didn't put cumin in the recipes. So you can get it at StopTheSalt.com. You can get it at Amazon. But if you get it at StopTheSalt.com, I'll sign it and I make more money. And we want me to make money, right? And also, I've just started a Patreon. So you go to Patreon slash Cooper Talk. I have some great rewards for different, you know, different levels of donating. So anyway, so people check out Bill Moomy. Check 
go to his IMDb. Check out some of his old shows, Buy the Lost in Space. Check out Twilight Zone. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. You guys have a great weekend.